like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We will, Lord willing, spend the majority of our time in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans, chapter 5. We'd like to go back and pick up a topic that we had started at the beginning of the year, where we were looking at several scriptures that pointed us to the coming of Jesus Christ. Not only the good news that he was coming, but the uh, absolute necessity that he needed to come. And in this, in, in this message, we will focus mainly on his first coming to the earth. We said that there are plenty of types and shadows in the Old Testament that pointed us, pointed us forward to the good news of Messiah coming. There are enough good things in the men of the Old Testament to show us good traits and good characteristics that we would see in Jesus when he came. But there's also enough rotten, terrible things in men in the Old Testament to show us the absolute necessity of Jesus coming. While there are types and shadows that can be seen in people like Moses and Abraham and uh, Joseph and Joshua, the Bible is, while it may allude to things like that, or you may kind of glean things like that, uh, in, in specificness, specificity, uh, in absoluteness, there's only one person in the Bible who is said to be a type and shadow and figure of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that person is Adam. And that's laid out for us in Romans chapter 5, which we may turn to in just a minute. But for the meantime, or for maybe say in introductory uh, ways, in 1 Corinthians 15, The Bible has this to say. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Uh, verse 47 says, the first man is of the earth, earthy. Couple with that reading, uh, one verse in the Gospel of John chapter 3 and verse uh, 31 John chapter 3 and verse 31. Well, uh, back up to verse 30. John the Baptist says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. 
One of the things that made John the Baptist one of the greatest preachers was this simple statement here. He must increase and I must decrease. That was the entire message of John the Baptist. The increase of Jesus and the decrease of humanity. What we attempt to lay out for you today is if someone were to ask you what is the main difference between Primitive Baptists and all other Baptists, or maybe all other people, uh, maybe this very uh, sentence here, he must increase, I must decrease. When you're speaking of doctrines from the Bible, when you're speaking of the doctrine of truth as it is contained in the Bible, your view of sin affects your view of Jesus Christ. Your view of how bad sin is will affect your view of how good and effectual the work of Christ is. You ever ever been sick? Everybody's been sick. You ever gone to the doctor? Everybody's gone to the doctor. You ever been sick and gone to the doctor and told the doctor what was wrong with you? And what the doctor needed to do to fix you? Doesn't that just thrill the doctor for you to look up your symptoms on the internet and tell the doctor how to doctor you? It really doesn't sometimes. Now, now keep in mind, I realize doctors are practicing. That's why it's called a practice. And we do have we do have a book at home written by a sister in a in a another church entitled "How I Survived My Doctor's Care." But going to the doctor and telling the doctor how to medicate you, or even attempting to self-medicate at home. Is like going to God and telling God how to fix your sin. The reality is, is God knows how bad your sin is. And God knows exactly what it takes to fix your sin. Now, this text here in John 3 said, He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. You see that? So back in 1 Corinthians 15, he said that the first man is of the earth, earthy. Let's just pause for a moment. Let's just pause and contemplate um, how this applies to human beings. We are of the earth, earthy. Which means we're going to kind of act like the earth a little bit. But here we are. Here we are in the in the great state of Alabama, right? What do you think is the most important thing to many people who live in the state of Alabama? That's right. Sunday morning church. No, the most important thing to a lot of people in the state of Alabama is football. Now, <clears throat> Those of you who may be listening to this tape or those of you who may be watching on the internet, 
You may think that I am sort of uh, exaggerating the uh, disgust and the hatred and the vileness that flows from one team to another here in the state. I assure you, I am not exaggerating this. If at all, I may be downplaying this. There are people in this state who would rather sooner die than ever have uttered from their lips the phrase, roll tide. There are people in this state who would rather sooner die than have uttered from their lips the phrase, war eagle. They will not wear red. They will not wear orange. They will not, under any circumstance, rejoice in the success of the other team, even if their spouse roots for the other team. They are that die-hard idolatrous in that practice. Why is it that we put so much emphasis in our life on earthly things that don't matter? You know, football don't last but what? uh, Twelve weeks of the year? Something like that? And peradventure, your team would succeed and go on to the playoffs and on to the championship. It's still only about then 16 weeks or so. Uh, Outside of that, it, it doesn't matter whose team is the best. But try and get people to have that sort of devotion to Christianity. And you may be sadly disappointed. I would not say that the primitive Baptists are 100% right on everything they do. I would certainly not say that we're 100% wrong on things that we do. But there's a reason that I'm a primitive Baptist. There is a reason that I show up at the primitive Baptists every Sunday. Because I think that we have the closest thing to the truth that is preached in the world today. The very idea, oh, that there's just all a little good in everything, denies the fact that there is absolute truth. And if you ever noticed how hard it is for you to start a good habit. I mean, here we are, we're we're in uh, March, beginning of the third month of the year. Any of y'all make New Year's resolutions? How did those go? Y'all lost the weight you were going to lose? Did you get the sleep you were going to get? Have you started the exercise you were going to start? We, we are of the earth earthy. If, if I come to a, a plot of ground, and the only thing that grows, that's growing there is weeds, 
and briars and thorns. Those things grow out of the ground naturally. A plot of ground untended tends to chaos and disorder. And you as a human being are exactly the same way. Because of the fall of man and because of the sin that came forth from and by Adam, an individual left to their own will tend to weeds and chaos and destruction. If there's anything good in a plot of ground, someone greater than the ground has to come along dig the ground and plant in the ground and tend the ground that is. We as human beings are in desperate need of the intervention of the Almighty. If God does not intervene in the life of an individual and cultivate in that individual faith in God, faith will never come. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not an outflowing of the natural work of human beings. It is strictly the work of God. It was of necessity that Jesus Christ Come into this world because of what Adam had done in the garden. When, when, you begin, when you begin to discuss, say, the nature of God, and you say that God is a sovereign God, what do we mean by God is sovereign? In its basic definition, we can say that God is large and God is in charge. That God is in charge and God gets to make the rules. Nebuchadnezzar said this of God in Daniel chapter 4, that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Well, I guess from one standpoint, multitudes can question God as to why God did something. But no one can really question God and point out an error in anything God has done. It's interesting when you even look outside the, the walls of Primitive Baptist, there may be others who say they believe in a sovereign God. Do they really? That God can do anything He wants. Well, God can do what you let Him do. Then that's not sovereignty. You begin to look at the, the subject of, of election. And the very people who just said God is sovereign and can do anything He wants to, well, what about election? Well, that's just not fair. Is often what most people say. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is, is when you start using the concept of that's not fair, you have taken your eyes off of how good God is. And you have elevated man beyond 
how bad he is. Perhaps we will discuss the subject of free will in a few weeks, maybe. I don't know. This is kind of something that rattles around in my head once in a while. But you oftentimes hear that subject of free will. Man just man has a free will and he can do anything he wants to if he just put his mind to it. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that man is dead in trespasses and in sins, right? Now, do we understand what the word dead means? I don't think a lot of people do. I don't think they completely understand the word dead. I mean, it's not really that hard. Dead means there's no life. But let's just look at this for a little bit. If, if, if man, man that's born in this world is blind, or say there's a man born in this world who is deaf, why is he blind? Why is he deaf? Is he deaf because he's stubborn and doesn't want to hear? Is he blind because he's hard-headed and doesn't want to see? Why doesn't he just become willing and will himself out of his deafness? Why doesn't he just will himself out of his blindness? Anybody do that? Jeremiah asked the question, can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian change his skin? Could you just will yourself to change the color of your hair? Can you just will your... I don't care if it comes in a box. It's not what I'm talking about. But can you just will yourself to wake up one day and have a different color hair, different color eye? Can you? Jesus, Jesus asked this question. He said, which of you, by taking thought, by thought, right? By being willing, which of you, by taking thought, could add one cubit to his stature? I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could just be willing to be taller? That helps some of you short ladies out here, right? I mean, we were talking about that just this morning. There's, there's cabinets in our kitchen that never get touched because the cook can't touch the cabinet. So we don't put things we need way up there. A man cannot just will himself out of blindness, right? He cannot will himself out of deafness, correct? An individual cannot will themselves to be taller or shorter or skinnier or fatter or whatever it is. Man cannot even will himself out of a toothache. How then can you think he can will himself out of death and sins? It's an impossibility. To say that God is unfair to elect one individual to salvation and not elect another is not to throw off on the election of God. It's to misunderstand the sinfulness of human beings. If you understand just how sinful human beings are, all the rest of it just sort of falls in place. If you understand just how corrupt and depraved, just how bankrupt and ruined human beings are outside of the grace of God, everything else just kind of falls in place. But in our day of equality, or the search for equality, I think people really start, I think people like to argue for something rather than to completely understand what they're arguing for. 
Did I say that right? They like to just argue a point rather than to understand what point that is. Or the effect or the outcome of that point. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a parallel that is laid out here. And the parallel between Christ and Adam are so far apart. In understanding this, this separates what I would consider to be biblical truth Biblical truth from the imaginations of men. And, and you know, here's, here's why I say this. If he is to increase and I am to decrease, then of necessity, the work of Christ cannot be placed on the same level as the work of man. Now, <clears throat> you may place them side by side, And see that the work of Christ and the work of Adam did something. But to completely understand them, what they did, they did not walk hand in hand with each other. They walked away from each other. They are polar opposites, so to speak. He says the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That God breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The last Adam, though, was a quickening spirit. Now let's let's look at this here just just briefly. First Corinthians fifteen. Let us notice about the the characteristics that Paul lays out here for uh, this first man Adam. So in First Corinthians fifteen. And verse 45, it says, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Verse 46 says, that which was, excuse me, howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. So Adam was made a natural living being. He was not made a spiritual being. He was a natural being. Verse 47 says, the first man is of the earth, earthy. He carries with it the characteristics of the earth. But the second man, the last Adam that came along, was a quickening spirit. And he was a spiritual being. He's the second man, is the Lord from heaven. Couple with this. What Paul lays down for us in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, Paul introduces us or explains to us the introduction of sin into this world. The atheists and the agnostics and the unbelievers think that they have sort of hemmed up Christians by asking this ridiculous question. 
They say, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in this world? And by asking that question, they think they've sort of hemmed us in. That since God is good, you would think that He would just replace all evil in the world with good. Um, If there were not evil in this world, by what would you compare God and say He is good? If everybody on the face of the planet had food and plenty to eat, by what standard could you say there was hunger? But everybody's got food. Nobody's hungry. If everybody had sight, does that mean that there should be anybody that's blind? And besides, to say that God is good, therefore He has to distribute to you and everybody equally alike, that is to hold God to a standard that we don't even hold ourselves. Just because He is good, why does He have to be good to you? Why, why? Why is he obligated? Is he obligated to be good to you? So, you know, I, I provide, I go to work, make money, I provide for my house, correct? Were you, you, would you say to me that I am a selfish, arrogant, evil individual because I then do not also provide for the house next to me? If an individual goes down to an orphanage and they they adopt a child, would you say that they are a selfish individual because they did not adopt all the children? I don't think you would. If the man passed by the orphanage every day and never adopted any of them, that does not affect the character that individual possesses. I drive through my neighborhood every day. I do not ever stop and divvy out my check to any mailbox along the street. Actually, if I divvied out my check to every mailbox along the street and had barely enough for my own family, you'd actually find me fairly ungood for not first providing for those of my own house. Because the Bible actually says, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. God is a good God. There is good in this world. There is good in this world because God has put it there. But there is evil in this world, not because of God, but because of the actions of one person. And Paul lays that out in Romans 5. He says, uh, beginning here in about verse 12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. 
Where did sin come from? Did it come because God decreed it? It did not. It came because of Adam's willful disobedience in the garden. Now, it's at this point that we would pick up and we would say that this sin has now uh, been generated down through history to every human being that's on the planet. Wherefore, it's by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Do you notice he says for that? By Adam's disobedience, because of that, all have sinned. That kind of flies in the face of this sort of uh, age of accountability thing that man really uh, is not accountable of his sins until he realizes he's accountable for his sins. In Psalms, Psalmist David said that, uh, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me. But David goes on to say, he says, My age is as a hand breath. It's as nothing before thee. When Adam sinned, sin became the defining characteristic of all humanity. The objection to that is, well, that's just not fair. Why am I held accountable for Adam's sin? You're not held accountable for Adam's sin. You're held accountable for your own sins. But you sin because Adam sinned and made it a part of you. He said, well, that's not fair. Well, how many, how many times do we really have to address the issue of that's not fair? How many times have you heard that? That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. Just because it's not fair, don't mean it's not true. So we have uh, we have six children, and with each of uh, the expectations of those children came also some instructions from doctors and midwives and child rearing books and things like that. Most of the experts, most of the specialists, anybody who's ever studied that, told my wife that it's very, very important what she eats, what she drinks, what she consumes during pregnancy. They were all concerned about whether she took Tylenol or Advil or baby aspirin. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't do anything of this nasty stuff because everything that you consume and put in your body has a potential to affect your child. There are children born into this world with birth defects, right? Some of them are unexplained. It just, the cell just didn't develop right. Something occurred in the womb. We're not sure why it happened, but it happened. But there are other children who were born into this world with birth defects that you can trace back to the negligence of the parents. Is it fair what the parent did to the unborn child? It's not fair. But is it true and real what happened? It is true 
and it is real. And that child will have to live the remainder of its days, not because of what it did, but because of what its parent did to it. Right? And then you get some sort of cases where you may have a parent that has a, a hidden defect they're not even aware of. And you have the other parent. The wife has a hidden defect. The husband has a hidden defect. And a one in a million chance that they get together and it produces a defective offspring. Is that fair? Nobody really looks at it and says, well, that's not fair. Why did y'all do that? But it's still true, right? And the child is saddled with this the rest of their life. We understand this, right? This is, a, this is an earthly principle, right? When Jesus said in John chapter 3, He says, if I tell you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Here is a principle that's carried out for us every day that we can see. That here is an effect that happens in a child's life because of who its parents are. So when we say to you that the doctrine of original sin, that you are a sinner, not because you chose to be a sinner, but because you're a sinner as an Adam, is a biblical doctrine, it's also a reasonable doctrine. Let's notice here what happens in Romans chapter 5. He says in verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, this is an interesting, interesting concept here. It says that those who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Have we ever really stopped to ponder and consider that Adam's transgression was just one transgression? It was just one transgression. It wasn't a long list of things. It wasn't a whole heap of things and God just got finally tired of it and His long-suffering came to an end. It was just one thing. I haven't sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression in just one thing. I've got a whole history of it. And so do you. And from that point on, Adam had a whole history of it. But the judgment of God came upon Adam because of one indiscretion. Read the text. He says here in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So we're going to have an action here of two people. Adam did something, caused something to happen. Christ is going to do something, and that's going to cause something to happen. Let's look at what Adam did. He says here in verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. So we're going to, we're going to uh, compare the offense and the free gift. Let's first look at this offense. Verse 15. For if 
through the offense of one, many be dead. So the offense of one brought what? Brought death, right? It's, it's easy to see in the text, right? For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. What Adam did affected a group of people. In the same manner, what Jesus did affected a group of people. Is anybody really going to stand here and say, okay, I'll go as far as to say, yeah, Adam made us sinners, but now Christ is offering to make us righteous. Did you catch it? God doesn't offer to make us sinners. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners because it was given to us in our parents. Verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the free, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. There's one person that did something. And that one person was Adam. That one person messed it up for all of us. Everybody he represented which was everybody in the human race, Adam plunged into an existence of sin. The Bible asks in the Old Testament, who can draw a clean thing out of an unclean? No one can. If your mama was unclean, if your father was unclean, guess what? You're going to be unclean. If children are born into this world with this doctrine of infantile purity, then pray tell what was the dire need for the virgin birth. If children are born into this world perfect and pure and sinless until they reach the age of accountability, why did the virgin birth have to occur? Why did God have to circumvent the natural course of humanity to bring His Son, Christ Jesus, into this world? He could have just picked any old child, had His angels camp around them, and protect this child until he was 33 years of age, leading to the cross. The miracle of the virgin birth was a necessity. Human beings could not be involved in this. You say, well, Eve was involved in it. I mean, uh, uh, Mary was involved in it. Mary was a recipient of something. She was not personally herself involved in that. Now, it, you have to jump that fence for me as an adult. She was not personally involved in that 
as much as she was a participant of that. There was a gift placed in her that grew in her that came from somewhere else, not of this earth. And this individual that comes forth into this world, not tainted by the sin that was passed down from Adam, was as the Bible said, as Paul said, made a curse for us. Paul told this to the church at Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, that, that, he that was made under the law, made of woman, was made a curse for us. That essentially everything that was involved in the curse that God laid out in Genesis 3, that road was traveled by Christ Jesus. God told Adam, he says, in the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat thy bread. Remember that? And yet, as Jesus is here in the garden before he goes to, he is in Gethsemane's garden before he goes to the cross. What is that famous text? But that he, his sweat was as it were, the sweat of his face was as it were, great drops of blood. It was told to Adam that thorns, also thistles and briars, shall the earth bring forth. And human beings platted upon the head of Christ a crown of thorns. He says, in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Has that not been true? Hebrews says that Jesus Christ will stand before God and say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. But those children that belong to Christ came through heartache and through suffering. And through enduring the cross that was set before Him and enduring the contradiction of sinners. Everything that was laid at the feet of Adam and says, this will be your prosperity the rest of your days. Jesus Christ Himself came and took upon Himself and became a curse for us. And it says here, Therefore, in verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. You say, well, now that uses the phrase all men. Doesn't that throw you primitive Baptists out of the water? Because it says all men. Is that all without distinction or all without exception? Hmm? In other words, everybody that Adam represented fell in Adam. Adam was the first of the human race. Everybody that Jesus represented was made righteous in Jesus. And that's the family of God. That's those whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world, whether you read that in Ephesians 1 or whether you read that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, doesn't matter. There was a covenant agreed on between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the world began. And Christ Jesus came into this world to save His people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one says, He came into this world 
having a people already chosen in him, given to him, and all that the Father giveth me shall come to him, and none of them shall perish. Not one. Have you ever noticed? I mean, really, if people really understood Romans chapter 8, this wouldn't even be a, this, this wouldn't even be a conversation. Say, so what do you mean by that? Romans 8, 28, you know? All things work together for good. Tornado comes through town, blows down the school, kills half the children in there. Well, parents, you may not understand it, but all things work together for good. You lose your job on Wednesday, can't pay your, uh, can't pay your bills by the end of the month. Well, you know, all things work together for good. You just kind of have to, to trust God in the midst of all this. Have you ever noticed how satisfied human beings are, are with the judgment of God? They're okay with God just tearing everything down. Because everything just works together for good. They don't back up and they don't realize that that text says whom he did foreknow. Whom he had a prior loving knowledge of. Not just a knowledge of, but a loving knowledge. Whom he did foreknow. He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Moreover, them he predestined, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What things are working together for the good of God's people? Because the text says, all things work together for good to them that are the called of God. For them who are the loved of God. Them who are called according to His purpose. This doesn't mean a harvest on Monday. This doesn't mean, you know, vacation time. This doesn't mean a brand new car. This means God loving you and electing you and calling you and justifying you and glorifying you in the person of Jesus Christ. This has worked together for your good. That you one day might see Christ in peace and holiness and happiness. You see, Paul says here in Romans 5, he's constantly reminding us, one man did this, one man did something else. Did you catch it? One man did this, one man did something else. One man did an offense, one man, one man did an obedience, and by Adam's one sin, he brought sin into the world. Hebrews tells us that when Jesus Christ had by Himself offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down. Both of them did one work. Both of them did one singular work. Those works were uh, polar opposites of each other, but yet both of them had the same effect. It affected the people whom the one working represented. If your employer or the owner of your company does something foolish and plunges his entire company into bankruptcy. You didn't do it, did you? But come Monday, you're going to be out of a job. Right? 
Y'all catch that? I mean, that's reasonable, right? Or your, your, your employer does something wonderful. Company prospers. In both cases, you are a beneficiary of the actions of an individual greater than you. Paul says here in, uh, in, in Romans 5, we'll go back to this, he says in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, that term all men that's located in verse 18 is clarified in verse 19. Verse 18, even so by the... Uh, verse 18, one judgment came upon all men condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, very next phrase. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. What's the purpose in God sending His law? Many might think that the reason that God gave His law to Moses in the Old Testament was to teach the Israelites how in their day they could be saved. That's not the purpose for Mosaic law. The purpose for Mosaic law was not that the law entered so that the offense might go away. He says the law entered that the offense might abound. Uh, move over to uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Uh, in other words, there, there's a multitude of people walking this earth today, and they have these brilliant ideas they think they've come up with, and they don't realize how, how ridiculous and wrong they are. I think I'm okay with what I'm doing because I'm a consenting adult, Right? You know, I'm above the age of 21. I'm above, I'm above this certain age. I'm above that certain age. Makes it right, right? What does Paul say? He essentially is saying, I was a sinner and didn't realize it. Because he says, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. It, without the law, I didn't think there's anything wrong with me. If I come down here to the end of our street, we have a four-way stop. Well, we have at least a two-way stop down here at the end of the street. But there's two roads. There's a crossroads just beyond the church here. And when we leave Grant's Wood Road here, there's a stop sign. Now, if, I, if there's not a stop sign at that crossroads, do I have to stop? Well, there's not a stop sign there. I could barrel on through there. But it would be an unwise thing to do, correct? 
So because it's an unwise thing, we now have to make a law. Put up a stop sign, don't go through it. In other words, it's not an immoral thing for me to have a cell phone in my car and using my cell phone. It's not really an immoral thing, but it's a very stupid and unwise thing. So now we have to create a law that says, pay attention to where you're driving. Think about others that are around you. Paul says, I was alive without the law once. This is verse 9. And so there's a multitude of people today. They're unbelievers. God is not quickened to them. They tell you they don't care about God. And they don't need God. They are just fine in themselves. Even the staunchest, most atheistic person who thinks we're all ridiculous, that we have too many rules and too many standards and too many don'ts in our life, even the most atheistic person has rules and standards and don'ts in their own life. He says, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law was holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul says here that the commandment came within the same passages here. Paul says the commandment came so that sin might appear exceeding sinful. The law was not given so that we could magnify ourselves by what we have done. The law was given to show us the impossibility to magnify ourselves by what we have done. It was brought to us as a schoolmaster to point us to Jesus Christ. To show us the only one that has the ability to fulfill the law in God's eyes is Christ Jesus our Lord. But when you approach this and you say to someone, Jesus has done it all. Essentially what Adam did in your life in taking you away from God, Christ came along and has brought you back to Him. The idea then is, well, it doesn't matter what we do. That's not what Paul says to us. Back up to chapter 5 and verse 20. He says, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Now, you know, I, I really don't I really don't understand the idea then if sin can abound in my life, but Jesus has done something but not everything. It doesn't say that, that grace abounds as much. It doesn't say that where sin did abound, grace abounded just as much. It's not what it says, right? It doesn't bring them up 
on the same level. It says grace has much more abounding. See, Paul Paul didn't say that we were conquerors in life in Romans 8. He said we were more than conquerors. He didn't say we fought a battle and we conquered and we overcame. No, my generation is more than a conqueror. Because the generation that went before me went to the foreign fields and fought the war on foreign shores and they conquered the enemy. I'm more than a conqueror. I didn't have to fight it. A battle has been fought for me. I'm living in the freedom procured by the generation that went before me. The church of Jesus Christ is more than conquerors. We are living in the blessedness of the conqueror, Christ Himself. So what should we do about that? Paul says in verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, just read right through the chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He said, now wait a minute, I'm not dead to sin. I've got sin all in me. I deal with sin every day of my life. Yes, you have sin in you and you are a sinner and you'll deal with sin to the day that you die. But you are dead to sin in, in the, in, in the, you are dead to sin in the sense that you are dead to the eternal damning effects of it. Because that penalty has been paid by Christ Jesus. And when He paid the account, the account was closed. We have been called by God Almighty to fulfill what is laid out here in about verses 10, 11, 12. 12, he says in chapter 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. God calls us to a life of holiness. He calls us to a life of obedience before Him. It is not in procuring eternity, but in the thanksgiving of it. You see, man by his nature is altogether vanity. How many times, remember reading that in Scripture a few times? Man in his very best state is altogether vanity. When you present the gospel to an individual... From strictly a fleshly, profitable standpoint, you're appealing to the vanity and nature of the individual. You don't want to go to hell, do you? You don't want to burn. You don't want to suffer. You don't want to miss seeing grandma, do you? Those are not reasons to believe in Christ. We don't serve God 
based out of what He might do for us. We don't serve God out of fear of where we might end up if we don't serve Him. We should serve God because He deserves to be served. We look for heaven. Not because it's the most glorious place we'll ever see. Not because we'll be free from pain. Not because we'll be free from troubles. Not because we're going to be with you know long lost brothers and sisters. We look for heaven because that's where Jesus is. See, Paul said, set your affections on things that are above. Colossians chapter 3, where Christ sitteth. As earthly human beings, it is hard in this life to completely focus on the good things of God. That's why there's a warfare in us that Paul talks about in Romans 7. This warfare of constantly wanting to do this and being pulled that way and go this way and go that way. And how we make more important the things of this world in our life than we do the things of God. But we recognize, we recognize, our spirit in us recognizes how much more peaceful of a people we are when God is put first, don't we? How much more of a blessedness it is to devote ourselves to things of righteousness and not the things of the flesh. How much more satisfying it is to be around brothers and sisters of like precious faith than it is to be around people of this world. Jesus had to come. Nobody nobody else could have come. Nobody else could have gone to the cross. Nobody else could have been the sacrifice. Nobody else could have paid for my sin than anybody else. Jesus Christ is the one and only. He had to come. The question in my life and the question in your life is, are we as thankful as we need to be for what Jesus has done for us? Thank you for your good patient attention this morning.